from MZ Studios in Dallas, Texas, you're listening to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. back well let me rephrase that now we are back I've got good news and i've got bad news and they're the same news uh cory is not here today and as a matter of fact he has decided to step away from the podcast for a while uh, i don't know what for a while means he said take a break i felt like ross and rachel but uh if you're too young to get that reference well just google it um so but uh, let me just start by thanking Corey for all the time and effort he put in over these last 153-ish, 150-plus uh, episodes. Uh, he certainly went a long way to making this podcast what it is. I'll let you judge uh, whether that's good or bad. And by the way, good or bad news w- would have been a lot funnier if he was there to laugh at himself when I said that. So it sounded more mean without him s- sitting there and laughing. But uh, he gets it. You get it. So anyway, Corey, thank you for all the time uh, that you put in over these last several uh, episodes, 150 episodes plus. I enjoyed it, and uh, I know the fans enjoyed it. And so uh, I'll let you know how it goes. I'll let you know if the numbers tick way up now that you're gone. Um, I'm just kidding, but I hope they do. But anyway, on to the actual tennis we had at hand. It's It's another useless week of tournaments. We, we, we talk about this, this period of time now is going to be referred to as the, the, re, the South American slam season. That's SAS, if you will. That's what I'm calling it. So right now should be the run-up to Rio, but not the Rio Open, the fifth slam. You've heard about it. You know what I'm talking about. You've heard the song. We got everything in the South America. We got everything in the South America. We got everything in the South America. That sounds a lot longer than 41 seconds, but I assure you that whole medley is 41 seconds. That's long. I need to just cut it down to the last bit. You know what it means. I don't have to play the whole thing, but that's our theme song for the Drive for Five. We're trying to get Shakira on board. We want to get Guga on board. And if we can do that, I think we can move towards the Drive for Five, the fifth slam, although it would be the second slam, becoming a reality in South America. If we were in the middle of that, it would be amazing right now. Amazing. But we're not. Instead, we have to talk about useless tournaments. Not useless. I mean, to be fair, they still have prize money. They still have points. 
and some players are still part of them. So they're real. And it's not the player's fault. Well, I guess it could be on how the season is set up. So the stories that matter to me really don't even relate to who won and lost the the finals of each of these tournaments. It doesn't even matter to me at all. Now we did have one tournament in Rio, but it's unrelated to the Rio Open. And we'll get back to the 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 South American Slam because I found a location. We'll talk about that later. So we had the Rio Open and don't care who won it. Because it's just a tournament. It means nothing. It means something to those players. I mean, even the fact that Dominic Team, the one seed, the Prince of Clay, the soon-to-be-crowned King of Clay when the actual king abdicates his throne by retiring, that would be Nadal, of course, the fact that he lost in the third round to a qualifier just gives you some idea that it doesn't have an impact on anything. I mean, how far away are we from the actual French Open? A long way. So it doesn't even matter. So his performance on clay right now, team, the print, the, his maiden, potential maiden slam could be in France, Paris. But I, of course it's not because it's going to be a joker uh, for, you know, slam this year. He's going to win them all. But it, it's not impacted by the fact that he lost the reopen to in the third round to a qualifier. That's what I mean by useless tournaments. I don't want to be too negative. I don't mind being negative, but you might. But it's a, these tournaments don't mean anything. They're not connecting anything, and they don't go anywhere, and they're too far away from stuff that doesn't matter. I mean, for Pete's sakes, we're about to jump into hard two Masters 1000 hard courts back-to-back. How ridiculous is that? And we're worried about a Rio Open clay court uh, tournament. Uh, you know, that that's why I say... It's useless. I mean, it's a 500. It, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. But the only things to me of interest to come out of these tournaments are threefold. One, Kim is back. So Kleister's played, and she had the unfortunate or fortunate. I don't know. It depends how you look at it. Uh, but she had the unfortunate draw of playing Muguruza. She was up in Dubai or down in Dubai or over in Dubai, wherever Dubai is. And she, she ended up playing Garbina Muguruza, who is, you know, she's back. She's back to form. And so uh, that's, to me, in my opinion, she's back to where she belongs. And so for Kleisters to have her debut tournament return to pro tennis, that's <laughs> a little tough ask right there. It'd been nice if she just would have gotten an unranked player or uh or what ha- or certainly a lower seed if anything but uh so so I was worried that it wouldn't come off uh too well and she may be discouraged and and nobody would uh nobody would look too favorably upon Kim's return but as it stands uh she did not win but I think she did what she could do it was 6276 and to me, that's a, a very honorable 
showing against a player at Garbini's level and back to her current, you know, where she's playing now, back to sort of vintage, if you will. Maybe not vintage, but at least a high level close to what she was before. Um, and so I, I guess it was sort of a win-win. I mean, Garbina won the match, win-win for, or win for her, and then Kleisters, I think, showed very well, and so I think that's a win for her. Uh, and so to me, that was one of the most important stories, I think, on the women's side. And here's why. It's, it's so much different than on the men's side. If Andy Murray were to come back, or as we've talked about previously in the podcast, if Andy Roddick would come back, save men's tennis, it would be a desperate feel to it. Whereas on the women's side, Kleister's coming back. That is just icing on the cake. We have so much depth and there's so many stories and so many players and so many players that are threats to win slams. I mean, Sophia Kennan for Pete's sakes. That it just having somebody like Kleister's come back is not this sort of weird, desperate attempt to really revive a sport. Instead, it's, you know, women's tennis is, is going strong. Oh, and by the way, how about we have a multi-Grand Slam winner come on back and get into the fold and be also be a threat, also challenge a lot of these young players and, uh, and make, it, make them better in the process, you know, is what I think. So that's, that's one story that really overrides the results, the winners, the, the rest of the, the, the tournaments going on this week. No, something else we also found out, Fed is out of the clay court season. And I don't care. Now, I do care why, because ha- he had not, Arthur Scroprick, Arthur Scroprick, Arthur Scroprick, yeah, that knee surgery. I did that on purpose, by the way. So he had knee surgery just to clean it up. He said his knee was bothering him. And so why not take the period of time between Australia and the French, as in past the French, to get surgery, recover, rehab, get back to form, because you weren't going to play clay anyway. It's not like you've never done this before, Roger. So everybody's sort of up in arms and, and overly worried about this, but I, what's the difference? He's done this before. Now, obviously, I, I don't want him to be less of a player. I think this will help make him – I mean, it's modern-day technology. It's 2020. He should be fine with a knee surgery. But anytime a player – who is at that level and needs to be at peak physical condition to compete at the highest levels. Anything that, that, you know, involves surgery of any kind that, that can be obviously a little scary as, as a fan um, for him, obviously, but as a fan, because what does it mean? Is he going to even get back to his previous self? And I don't worry about that as much. Again, I, I trust in modern, He's got plenty of money, so it's not like he went to the free clinic to get this done. So he went to whoever the best knee guy or girl is in the world and and did that, I'm sure. So I'm sure he was in great hands, and that's not even a concern. So everybody's freaking out that he's skipping clay, and I'm like, he wasn't 
going to hardly play anything during the clay season anyway. And to be honest with you, how old is he, 60? This is going to help him be rested up and fresh and everything else for grass season if he, if he is able to rehab and get back 100% to grass. And if not, hey, no problem. Hardcourt season. He'll come back and, uh, and finish third at the U.S. Open is my prediction. So um, not to worry, not to worry at all. So the other, so if you listen last week, we jumped on the Monfils bandwagon, and not just jumped on the bandwagon because oh we like Monfils, but no, he predicted or or set a goal for himself to be top ten, which he is now, um, but number one in the world, and to win a Grand Slam, and to me. The reason I sort of latched on to that, and we talked about it last week, is because it, it, it spoke to me. It, it seemed like he was rededicating himself and was taking very seriously what he was trying to do in his career, at the tail end of his career here. Maybe he realized, hey, I've just kind of been messing around and getting by on Townland alone or whatever. I, I'm not pull, putting his work ethic into question here. I don't know. I'm not there, but whatever the case may be, he felt he needed to rededicate himself. So clearly he wasn't dedicated enough in his mind. So because of, because of all that, it got me inspired to begin to follow him exclusively as a fan. Cause I don't really, I'm not in any particular fan army. I love tennis. I'm a fan of tennis. I'm a fan of great matches. I'm a fan of matches that mean something that are also great. But that's a prerequisite to it being great. It has to mean something. But I don't have a dedicated player that I just live and die with week to week. And so I'm going to try to, uh, you know, so last week's podcast, I committed to doing that with Monfils. So what does he do? He doesn't play. So that was helpful. But he'll be back at it. Don't worry. He'll be back at it, and we will be tracking him, and uh, and hopefully, hopefully, he will at least put. Uh, if he doesn't achieve his goals, that's all right. I mean, that's that's the fun part about watching him try to achieve it. Is it's possible he might not get there? That's what puts you on the edge of your seat. So going along for the ride will be the fun part, and so uh, and we will week to week. We will talk about his um, progress in that. And the only other thing that I ask is that Svitolina doesn't break his heart in the middle of this run and throw him right off the rails. That would be a bummer. So hopefully he'll be out. I haven't looked at the draws of of these upcoming tournaments uh, to see where he's at. But hopefully he'll be playing and we can start that process because I sure was hyped up about it and then he didn't play. And then it was a bummer. So one thing that uh, we talked about in the past that I would like to bring back up on the podcast during this particular period of time is another avenue of tennis that you can watch. And not only watch, 
you can be a part of in your area, and that's college tennis. So if you're in the U.S. listening to this, I mean, I don't exactly know what the situation is around the world as far as college tennis. I'm pretty sure they don't do it like we do, where we have you know all of our college sports. For better or for worse, that's a different podcast. But in the U.S., we have, for fans, we have uh, basically the equivalent of college basketball. We have it for tennis. Uh, dual match format where two schools play head-to-head, a combination of singles and doubles, each match getting points, and then um, you know the winner, whoever gets to four points first. Uh, out of the singles and doubles matches. And and so it's it's a little bit different in terms of tournament play, what you're used to, but it's very exciting. The mentality on court is night and day. So you have the stuffy sort of Wimbledon on the one extreme where it's all white and nobody can talk and everybody's shushing everybody all the time. And then the other end of the spectrum, eh, maybe not the other end of the spectrum, but close is college tennis. So you'll have multiple courts going on all at one time right next to each other. And on court two, for instance, the guy or girl is about to start serving. But court three just finishes a fantastic point and the crowd's erupting. right, And it doesn't matter. Right next to court three where the action's happening, they're about to start a point and they just play through all the cheering. So it can be done. And, you know, I've coached college tennis for quite a while, and I've got accustomed to that mentality. And so it's a little bit, you know, kind of, uh, you know, I feel like a little bit I'm getting shushed when I watch any other tennis because it's, I've been doing this for long enough to uh, I'm used to that rowdy uh, sort of nature. And to be quite honest with you, I would love to see like right now during this period of time, maybe this dead period of useless tournaments, how cool would it be? If we had one tournament that was like a rock and roll tournament, a rock and roll tournament, and where could they do that? Until we move Miami and put it in the South American Slam series, which we're going to do. But prior to that, right now, the Miami tournament's played at the Hard Rock Cafe Stadium, which is a football stadium where they yell nonstop during games. Well, not really, because Miami's awful, so they just sit there and murmur quietly. But if they were any good, they would yell. So what a perfect place. What if we made Miami, the Masters 1000 at Miami, a wide-open rock and roll tournament? It doesn't mean anything. It's a hard-court tournament in the middle of nowhere. So who really cares? Hard courts, U.S., we're a little more rowdy here. Apparently, you know, loud Americans and all that business. And so why not have that feel where we just let the crowd loose? Just let them loose. A lot of cheering, maybe, you know, not, you know, no, no racial epithets or any of that kind of stuff. No threats. But cheering nonstop, chanting, you know, crowd get behind their countrymen and countrywomen, all that kind of stuff. And see what happens. Some would say it'd be the death of tennis. But not if it's only one tournament. If it's just one tournament, we get to see what it's like at the highest level. It's a, it's a Masters 1000. So it, it, 
it should have all the top players. It'd be very interesting to see how they would handle that atmosphere. And to be honest with you, I think, I mean, it's a weird setup inside a football stadium anyway. And then they have courts outside in the parking lot or something. It's a whole situation. But if you could set up, what if you set up two courts adjacent to each other where you had stands that could watch both courts? Obviously, you'd have to have them separated by partition, but um, but not a whole, you know, not stands or a wall in, in between, but just sort of, you know, a higher uh, barrier where you could still see what was going on. That way, all both courts could hear the fans from the other courts. I don't know. I think it'd be interesting. I think there'd be a lot of whining and complaining from some of these top players. I get it. Not what you're used to. But you never know. You never know because every other sport that around the world, every other sport is loud and rowdy, except golf, is loud and rowdy and everybody carries on and they seem to be able to do just fine. I mean, shooting a free throw in basketball is no different than hitting a serve in tennis in terms of, you know, you step up to the line, everything's quiet, but in basketball, you step up to the foul line and people are losing their minds. And I would actually argue it takes more fine motor skills to make a ball into a hoop with, and you can't, your arm movement shooting, I know nothing, I'm awful at basketball, but you watch it, your arm movements in the free throw are more controlled than on a serve. On a, on a serve, you're swinging full speed, which that speed just kind of all out, that helps. It's not as many fine motor skills in terms of, of uh, you, know, you don't have to sort of use any touch to get it where you want it to go. So I don't know. I mean, it, it, it is done in other sports. I don't see why it can't be done in ours just for an experiment just to give it a try and just to see what would happen and see how good, bad, or awful the tennis might be because of it. And I, I admit, it could go sideways in a hurry. But I just think it would be interesting. But in lieu of that, get out and support your local college tennis teams, even if it's not your alma mater. Um, there's Division One teams all over the place. And here is one of the ways you can sort of tell what the level of that team might be. And I'm sure you've heard of this. It's called the UTR, or Universal Tennis Rating. And you see it on TV now. Um, and I don't know what its track record is in terms of accuracy at the tour level. Um, I just feel like those all those players are so close together and level that it's trickier. But in college, every team, if you go to the UTR website, every college team has their roster on there. And you can look at their UTR numbers. And so you can sort of get some idea of and, – and that UTR scale is the same scale as you have for – Nadal, Djokovic, Federer. It starts at 16 plus and goes all the way down to, I don't know, two, one, I don't, unrated. I don't know. And so you can look and see 
where everybody is in relation to all the top players. And that gives you some idea of how close to the level that these Division One college players might be to your favorite elite athletes on the ATP or WTA tour. And so it just shows you that, wow, the level I'm watching is not necessarily that far off. It's not that far off. So give it a try. I will warn you, the UTR, it is a good product. It is an algorithm, whatever that is. Most of you probably have some idea. I don't. I know the word. And they have tested over, I mean, years now. It's probably been since they started it in a garage somewhere, 10 years or something or more. I don't know. But it's been used in juniors, in college, at the pro level. And so they've got data and data and data and data. And so is it perfectly accurate? Of course not. Are there, are there outside factors in terms of, you know, data points that don't sort of match up right so you don't get as clear of a picture? Yeah, whatever. But it's, it's probably as good as anything else that anyone else could come up with in terms of, of uh, a rating system. So with that being said, that's what they have. And I, here's what I like to compare them to. I like to, to compare them to Coca-Cola in this way. So the algorithm is the Coke itself. The secret formula that makes it taste so yummy and addictive. I mean, I'm telling you, every college player and every high school player, for that matter, that you talk to, uh, as you're go- you know, as I talk to you going through the rec- recruiting process, everybody, almost everybody, includes their UTR on every email I get, and every coach asks or tries to find the recruits' UTRs. It's it's ubiquitous. There's my big word for the day. It's ubiquitous, and it's it's kind of come out of nowhere because at one point it didn't exist, and then boom, all of a sudden that was it. So the product itself, it's working. And just like Coca-Cola, you can find it in any country in the world. You can find a Coke machine. Now, Here's where it goes a little sideways for the UTR. If you were to take Coca-Cola and instead of receiving it in a nice, handy, twist-top plastic bottle or in the classic glass bottle, but instead somebody said, here, hold out your hand, and then instead of pouring it in your hand, they dumped it on your head. That's the delivery system of the UTR. So their website and their search engine and all the rest of it is a disaster so far. So don't get discouraged by that. So you go to these, go to the UTR, I think it's myutr.com, and and search for, you can look for players. You can find Nadal and Serena and you go down the list on the men's and the women's. And then you can type in a college. So if you live near Notre Dame, you type in Notre Dame, and by some luck, it might come up. Sometimes it doesn't. Like I said, the search engines uh, leaves leaves a little bit to be desired. But anyway, you can find the level of 
the team that maybe you're a fan of, like maybe you're a football fan and you want to kind of follow their tennis. And, uh, and so you can kind of go find, and, and I think the UTR could be a good tool to really encourage people to say, Hey, this is a really high level. Now it's not the same as basketball. It's not the same as football uh, here in the States. If you want to play in the NFL, I mean, it's almost 100% of those people uh, that go into the draft go through the college system. And not one hundred, not that high, a smaller percentage is the case in basketball, but still a pretty good percentage go through ba- the basketball, even if it's one, for one year, one and done, as they say. But in tennis, that's not the case. But still, the UTR, looking at it, seeing the, the, the numbers, it can really give you a, a nice picture of what the level is of these teams compared to the WTA and ATP Tour players. And it's not, it's not real, real far off, especially the top players. So I would highly encourage you to do that. Go to, their, go to the college websites. All you have to do is, it's, I mean, I'm telling you something you know, but just Google the school name and M Tennis or W Tennis for men's tennis or women's tennis, obviously. Find their schedules, find their home matches, and I guarantee you, Provided it's not an indoor facility, if it's you know bad weather, sometimes those can be restrictive in terms of viewing. But for the most part, their outdoor facilities on most of these major schools are fantastic. And, and if they're not fantastic, they're adequate, which is good enough. Um, you'll have a, you know, a set of stands to watch matches from. Um, they'll, they'll usually, major schools, they'll all have chair umpires on every court usually. And so... You don't have to really try to pay too close attention to what the players are saying because the chair is going to keep the match going. They'll make the announcements of the scores and so forth. And so um, that it really makes it for a, a more user-friendly from your, your angle uh, as a fan. So give me some feedback. Tweet me um, at Tennis Rev Pod. Uh, let me know if you did go to see a college match. It's starting to get warmer at least in the southern states, it's still chilly, I know. Uh, but once we get into late March, early April, it's really heating up. The conference matches are start happening against each other. Those are the important ones. Um, but, yeah, keep, keep me posted on that. If you, if you do uh, go to some, some college matches, shoot me a uh, tweet or an Instagram, Tennis Revolution Pod on Instagram, and, uh, and let me know what your thoughts are. Uh, let me know what your impressions are, and if, if you – if I was right, or if I was crazy, uh, if you'll go back ever, or if it's the worst thing you ever saw, um, I'd love to hear hear about that. But but supporting tennis in the U.S. that is actually one of the big ways we can do that. And yes, I get it. There's a lot of players that are international. I don't care. They're playing for American universities, which is good enough. So don't worry about all that other business. Just go support the American school that has the international players on it. And guess what? The more players we get to come in, the higher the level is going to be. That American versus international player debate for on colleges, that's a whole separate uh, topic, which we can get into one day. But generally speaking, go support these college teams. It's, gr- it's not just – you're not just doing these teams a favor. It's also good for you as a fan – because it's a lot of fun. You get to see tennis in a different way. And, and again, it's a high level. 
It's a high level. And one of the things I've said that these tournaments this week don't have a lot of, in my opinion, but that college does, that's a lot of meaning. That is a lot of meaning. When you have a team and you're competing as one, trying to beat another team, particularly if it's a college rival, which are some of the best rivalries of any sports, it adds so much intensity. Uh, there's so much meaning, and it'll draw you in. I promise it'll draw you in. So definitely go try to do that. I'd love to, like I said, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, I'd love to hear your experience, experiences and see um, if I'm crazy or not. But and I'm and again, this is not just for selfish purposes. This really is because it is an aspect of American tennis a lot of people don't think about. Uh, but as a college coach, I feel obligated to some degree to to mention it and say, hey, this is one great way to to kind of give to the game. So, all right, well, that is the second podcast in a row, all by myself. It didn't get any easier. I hope it got a little better. Um, if it didn't, please don't tell me. I'm kidding. You can if you want, but I don't read anything. Um, so uh, until next time, thanks for joining the revolution. <laughs>